Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast, brought to you by Blue Box Partners, the only show dedicated to small business residential surveyors and valuers, created by surveyors for surveyors. In every episode, you'll learn something new about the vibrant and thriving industry of residential surveying. We don't mind what flavor of surveyor you are or what level of experience you might have. If you're in the business of helping people with their homes, this is the community for you. So welcome to today's podcast. I've got an unusual one today because I've got Emma and Aaron, who both have the same surname. (laughs) Hello. Um, Hello. So do you want to uh, explain yourselves, the pair of you? You go first. Okay, so hi, yeah, I'm Emma. So we're a husband and wife team. I've got a building surveying practice. We're based in South Devon. And we've been working together for two and a bit years now with very different backgrounds, I think, haven't we? Yeah, definitely. Obviously, I'm Aaron. And what kind of work do you do then? So I'm a chartered building surveyor. So for us, predominantly, it's um, pre-purchase surveys, you know, home buy reports, full building surveys, a lot of defect analysis work, which um, certainly after sort of the, the winter we've just had uh, came, came uh, flooding in, no pun intended. And yeah, mainly that we do some architectural work as well, extensions, loft conversions. That's, that's pretty much it, really. Are you from that part of the world originally? So Emma is. Yeah, I'm born and bred, Devonshire girl through and through. <laughs> and yeah, I, I, was, um, I was born in, in uh, Barkin in East London. And uh, in 96, when I was 10 years old, my parents moved us down to, to Torquay mainly because of my education, actually, because things weren't, weren't so great up there with things. So, um, yeah, it was, if I must admit, best move they, uh, they could have made, best decision they could have made. And you mentioned there about flooding and problems in that part of the world. Crikey, that seems like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it, with everything that's happened in the last year? Tell me a bit about, more about that. So, yeah, I must admit, the, um, it was odd, actually. I've had a phone call earlier today with a, with a sort of former client, and he even commented on it. That the rain is, is just horizontal all the time in, in the southwest, um, and obviously prevailing sort of wind and rain and that. But um, yeah, a lot, lot of old stone buildings, a lot of cob buildings. There's just a lot of penetrating damp, and I guess like anywhere in the country, there's certainly a lot of letted places, uh, you know, tenanted places that, um, that aren't maintained, shall we say, to, to their highest standard. So there's just a lot of roof defects and things like that that we we get to look at and. We're quite fortunate I, I, at the networking group I go to. Um, there's a drone pilot there, CAA approved drone pilot. So he comes in handy. It's very, very useful. And it's unusual to get a husband and wife surveyor team. I'll admit most of the husband and wife businesses that I've come across has mainly been the little old lady or little young lady in the back doing the admin. But you're both qualified surveyors. How did you both, you well, Lots of questions. How did you meet? How did you both become surveyors? Tell us a bit about your journey. So we met at ages 15 and 16, starting back from the beginning. So we met through a mutual friend, different schools. So it's just kind of a 16th birthday party, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, yes, we've grown up together. Aaron started in construction and I didn't really know where I was going. I started in the NHS, having done your, your work experience at school in the NHS and then ended up there for 15 years. But we always wanted to work for ourselves. I think like you've said before, you do what you do, you just end up in the world of surveying. But so my, I didn't start out as a surveyor when we, when we started this venture. And you're absolutely right. At the beginning of this, whilst my background is HR, I'm a chartered member of the CIPD, but very much if we were out on site, people would talk to Aaron. 
if we were out on site, he'd brought the secretary along. That was very much the opinion. And whilst that was a part of it, I think as well, I'd been, because of Aaron's study and both of us studying, I'd been the main breadwinner for probably the first 15 years of our relationship. So to then come into a business where actually I wasn't fee earning, that felt very strange for me. That was a new concept. And even though I was enjoying what I was doing, working with our clients, I wanted to have that technical knowledge and I wanted to make sure that the clients had confidence when they were working with me. And that led me to to want to do a bit of what Aaron was doing. So I, I went on and got my technical certificates and then got my ASOC recs earlier this year with a view to hopefully do my chartership once I've got a few more years behind me. That's really interesting, that dynamics in a relationship over money. And one thing we see a lot of with women is they don't plan for their financial wealth and pensions and what they're worth. There's the whole gender pay gap and, and things like that. And that's interesting because when I left my corporate job, I wouldn't say I was on equal salaries with my husband, but I earned more, you know, and we'd always sort of seen ourselves as as an equal. But then he got a huge promotion and moved jobs just as I left my job. And all of a sudden, the dynamic really changed. And I didn't like it. I felt I lost my, amongst other things, I lost my, my financial independence. And I think more women need to take you know, to take responsibility for that. What I'm really encouraged is on the mastermind, which I know you're both a part of, which is great. And the women that I, that I come across is there more women working for themselves, particularly in this industry. And that's really something we need to, need to encourage, definitely. Absolutely. Mm. It, it's interesting, isn't it, that I think I said we both started working before we were qualified. So we we went to university as adult learners, part-time and through distance learning. But even from that, it was that that culture of, you know, you go to work, you earn a wage. If you if you want a mortgage and you want, you know, a life, then then you have to work for that. And even though I was with Aaron from the age of 16, it was always a case of I have to be able to provide for myself. Anything could happen to either one of us at any point. I have to know that I can provide. So like you said, entering an industry where now I wasn't a fee earner at the beginning, as you said, that's a, that was a very different position to be in. So it's it's great now that we're starting to get some of that balance back and it gives us more scope for the future as well. And what about your journey then, Aaron? How did you become a surveyor? I, th- I think it's quite familiar with a, a lot of people that um, have sort of construction workers in their family. Um, my, both my granddad's um, un- uncles and that and cousins are all in the construction industry. My dad's a carpenter and joiner. And I actually started my A-levels, did my the first year of my A-levels and realized that, you know, photography wasn't going to be a path I was ever going to be really interested in. So my dad just sort of said, you know, do you want an apprenticeship? I'd rather you have something to fall back on. So I, I remember saying to him at the time, yeah, go on, then I'll scrape the barrel. <laughs> Even though it turns out 10 years later, I absolutely loved it. And there's some of the best years of my life. And most people, Aaron, most people on this podcast say, I fell into it. Yeah, that's I fell into the profession. Not, I scraped the barrel and it was the last job I could think of doing. Yeah, I, I did say it with a sort of, you know, dry smile. Was, um, I did say that knowing that it would wind him up, you know, he dedicated his life to a career path and there I am, 16 and insulting him. But um, yeah, I, I must admit, I went into it. I, I managed to get an apprenticeship with the company that he was working for and went through my MVQ one, two and three. And yeah, you are right. I fell into it because I remember sat there with a, my best friend. He was best man at my wedding, second year of carpentry. And the, the teacher there sort of said, I'm like, for those of you who want to do your MVQ3, it means more site management work. And we sort of looked at each other and went, 
yeah, go on then. It, it beats cutting a roof in in the winter, you know, if we can be sat in an office for a little bit. So we did that. And the same again happened from the MVQ3 to the HNC, more project management work. And I didn't have a, a clear direction. I just knew it wasn't on site the whole time. And we, we looked at each other and, yep, yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's do the HNC. And it was through that there was a, a module called Building Surveying. And I, I just fell in love with it and applied to the University of the West of England. I did that part-time for three years, driving from Torquay to, to Bristol once a week for three years. And yeah, yeah passed that with, with a 2-2. Um, I, was, I was quite happy with that, I think, considering I wasn't even in, in the job. And then, yes, I think I was looking from 2009 to 2000, well, 2015, really, I was looking for a job and just no one locally would take us on. I had a short stint at a local firm, but financially they couldn't make it work. So that, that was unfortunate. I was made, made redundant in that rather quickly within six months. So really, that's a really long period to qualify and then to try and get yourself started and employed. It was, it was hard to keep the motivation up. It was, um, I mean, at the, at the time I look back at carpentry fondly, but when you're in a job you really know isn't your long-term goal and all you want to do, you know, my uni friends were progressing. They were, they had their jobs were learning more. And I'm just still on site, middle of winter, minus 10, whatever the temperature was, whatever the weather, and just wasn't where I wanted to be. So it was, it was hard to keep the motivation there. Definitely. I think the commitment for Aaron to know what he wanted to do and be determined to get there never faded, though. So even when during that period, it was after the recession, people weren't hiring. So he would take unpaid leave from the day job to go and do work experience with local firms to make sure that he kept his skills up until a time where there was an opportunity so i must admit as well that the firm that sort of i was made redundant from i don't want to do them a disservice at all because they allowed me to shadow them they were always on hand for phone calls they actually provided a mock interview for my apc three years after i last spoke to them so they were brilliant and really supportive but yeah that was 2013 so there was a stint in 2013 where i was a self-employed carpenter had loads of work lined up dropped all of that to become a, a surveyor and then after I think it was four months, I was I was let go and had nothing to go to sort of two weeks before our honeymoon. So it was a bit a bit stressful, but that that's it was what it was. We we weren't getting around it and we just got on with it. In twenty fifteen, I was lucky enough to get a job with a local authority nearby. And it was just property maintenance. And from there on, two and a half years into that job, I passed my APC. And I felt like I feel like I've waffled on a fair bit with that. But that's well, that. no. Do you know what? Though I think I think sometimes for people, I think they need to see as a reality check of actually how hard it is mm. to get to where you've you've got. But you know, you learn things along the way, and and what you're showing for me is real resilience. You've yeah. got to, you know, you're running your own business now. I'll ask you more about that that in a minute. But, you know, you've, you've, you've gone the, through the ups and downs and boy, they feel hard at the time. And I know there'll be lots of people listening who struggle to find a mentor, struggle to find those sort of first few jobs. Now, as we, you know, you sort of talk about the recession sort of back then, boy, who knows what's going to happen right now with the world as it is with the virus and all that malarkey. Uh, you know, there'll be lots of, lots of people who are just starting their careers thinking, well, how am I going to work? How am I going to earn? But what you've sort of shown is just great resilience. But what have you, what do you think you've learned from it? Just don't, don't ever stop. If you've got a goal, like, don't get me wrong, there was plenty of course correction. It wasn't plain sailing. It wasn't, I would, I'd like to think I was flexible because I never saw me working in local authority ever. And I, I think I learned a lot about myself in the sort of nearly five years I was there. And I think the people I worked with would say that as well, because it just, there, there was an element of the culture of local authority that probably didn't suit my personality and also the type of work. Um, whereas I know when I worked in, in 20, 
13 for, for a private practice, that was spot on. I knew that was what I wanted to do, hence why we set up the business. And I think as well, like just uh, there was a couple of other things in, in that time, sort of between where I started my apprenticeship to, to when I, I joined the local authority, I was made redundant three times without pay each time before I was 30 years old. And that to me just ingrained something that I, I try not to sound negative here, but in a sort of way that, well, there is no safe job. There is no secure job at all anywhere. So why not just do it myself? Because I know I'm going to put in the work and dedication, show the resilience to just get on with it and make adjustments and make it work. So that, that's why, that's how we've come to this place. You know, the APC, I, I, you know, early mornings, late nights, like I'm sure every other candidate has put in and just, just got on with it, made it my priority. I've probably learned a lot about myself about how resilient I can be, even though I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. Uh, and how did you feel about that, Emma? Uh, and having terrifying. seen you go, go through, through all of that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the APC years were hard years, weren't they? Definitely. Mm. But like I said, Aaron is so dedicated. You, you know, if he wants something, it will only be a matter of time. But it was hard. I mean, like I said, for me, I've been public sector since I left school. So have that safe, secure, regular income. So whilst Aaron was private sector and, you know, we would regularly get a phone call at six o'clock on a Sunday evening saying there's no work for you tomorrow. And it was quite regular for us to not know where his half of the money was coming from, I always had that constant. So that was fine. So then for me to leave as well, that was a big change to have both of us kind of at risk, if you like. But and like you said, so we we set up part-time to start with. We only actually launched full-time at the end of October last year. And you think since then we've dealt with Brexit election, some of the worst winter storms and now COVID. So you talk about resilience, I'm thinking if we can get through this, we're gonna be fine. <laughs> we can get through anything. But but absolutely, there is something about take me back five years and I never take me back a year. I would never have seen me leaving a public sector role. It was comfortable, it was safe. But then to hear now, and I think the thing that keeps both of us going when there isn't work coming in is would we go back? If we had a choice now to go back to a safe, regular income being employed or being where we are now with, you know, during COVID, potentially no income, we'd pick this every day of the week. That's how we know we've made the right decision. Yeah. Definitely, completely agree with that. And I think, like, sorry to just jump in there, and sorry if I'm not speaking for you here, but there was a point where, you know, personal circumstances in our life that I think we've shared recently with on, on the mini mastermind with you guys, things happened. And there was a point back in 2018 where Emma was like, oh, do I leave my job? Do I leave my job? Or 2017, I think it was. And we, you know, never took the leap. And I remember saying at that time, we'll make it work. I didn't have a plan, I didn't know how, but just. Well, if I need to work weekends with my dad, you know, hanging doors and fitting kitchens, we'll just make it work. It, it, it'll be fine, you know. And it, that time came around again, sort of at the end of 2018. And then, yeah, January 2019, you handed in your notice. And again, it was the same advice. We'll make it work. I don't know how, but, but we did. We did. And it's, again, not looking back. You know, it's a, a great example of um, that saying, hold the vision, trust the process. Yeah. You know, you yeah. don't know how it's going to work out. But sometimes I think we don't or we forget how much strength and knowledge and that we've got the wherewithal to to earn money, to do a job. Yes, it can be really hard, but there's always something that you can do. On the podcast that went out uh, recently with um, Juliet Weston, you know, she was talking about working, I think it was in a factory. She came back, there's no work. Hey, I'll just go and work in a factory for a bit. We've just got to sort of be as open as we can to, I mean, I'm not saying that's not not hard, 
Absolutely. Particularly there's financial pressures, particularly if you've got family, particularly to worry about the, the roof over your head, you know, but it's holding that vision and trusting the process that gets us all through, um, through, through the tough times. What was it like handing in your notice and then that sort of first day at work or, or doing the first job, your first McCluskey surveyor's job? For me or Emma, because <laughs> it was it was a big milestone for both. And it was a very yeah. different experience for both as well. For me, it, it was a bit surreal, but due to personal circumstances, I'd had a little bit of time off work anyway. So I was at home and it was just after Christmas. So so yeah, it was a bit it was a bit surreal because it was everything that I'd known my whole career. But actually, I knew it was the right decision. It was the fact that I'd spent some time with a coaching colleague. We were off at the same time. She'd had an accident and, and broken her shoulder. And she was high on medication at this point. And she just sat me down and just, and we were talking about my return to work after a period of absence. And she just looked at me and she just said, but you're not going back to work. And it was that kind of, well, what, what do you mean? I hadn't even, it was almost that permission. I hadn't even told myself that that was an option. I had to work. And then I came home and Aaron said, well, how was your conversation? And he sort of said, oh, I, it was his boss at the time. And he said, oh yeah, I told my boss last week that you weren't returning to work. Well, nobody told me that I wasn't going back to work. <laughs> so that was a bit strange. But um, yeah, I, I never thought I'd be there. And Aaron's last day at work, he got rather merry and I had to apologise on his behalf. But other than that... <laughs> <laughs> the more traditional route. <laughs> to, to, to be fair, it was, it was a sort of, I say long drawn out process, not in a negative sort of way, but I wanted to give you know, I really appreciated the opportunity that the, you know, my bosses at the local authority gave me. Um, and they certainly were very tolerant. They knew about the, the business and, you know, we had flexi leave and things like that to, to make it work. So I was, I was very thankful there. And I, I'd handed in my notice. Well, I gave three months notice effectively and I didn't have to, but I did. I wanted to give them plenty of time to, to find someone else to bring in. And hopefully it was a smooth transition. But yeah, that, that was that. And then, yeah, on the last day, it was Halloween, wasn't it? And yeah, it was a good send off. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good send-off it was you know it was it was the end of an era I didn't I didn't feel indifferent about it I didn't feel sad I was happy to go but it was yeah it was nice I think we'd been we'd been working towards that moment for so long it had seemed you know years and years it had been seemed in the making to the point where we had a countdown on our phones leading up to that moment of when we launched full time and quite regularly Aaron would be sat in the office and he'd just sort of text me like what's the countdown saying <laughs> just so you know you could count down how how long it was going to be so yeah. hold, hold the vision absolutely <laughs> for a long long time <laughs> and what was it like doing your very first job you know your first survey because um, does it does it stay with you because I remember mine I got qualified and I was allowed to go. I worked for a corporate at the time. I was allowed to go out and do my first job. And I can remember the address and the house. And it was a further advance. It wasn't even a full mortgage vow. It was a further advance for like the worst fee that you've ever come across. And uh, I remember being so shaky and nervous and thinking, actually, I can, I can do this. I can do this. Uh, but I still, I still remember it now. Yeah, um, I must admit. So I, it, the first job was actually when I was still working for the local authority. So it was a, it was a Saturday morning survey. I arranged it with the agent, and I must admit, it, there was a point where I was just getting on with it, and then it dawned on me. And I think it dawned on me after I spoke to our client properly. She she had a a real I can't even remember her name. Obviously, I won't say it here, but I, she had a bit of a moan up about surveyors and and how she'd been stung in the past. And my initial reaction was, okay, well you're not going to be stung by us. You're going to be impressed by us. And we're going to be, you know, shining light surveyors, you know, to your rescue. Um, and then when I turned up to the property, I thought, 
God, I hope I don't find something that I don't know about. But as, as I went through the process, I followed the RRCS sort of guidance notes and surveys, you know, worked through E1, E2, E3, and just did it really methodically, took my time. And yeah, coming to write the report, yeah, I was slow, but I really enjoyed it. And like you, I remember the address. And it was really weird, actually. The vendors were people that I knew. <laughs> so like quite quite distant friend of friends. But um, yeah, it was a it was a funny one. And it just it it built from there doing one survey a weekend right up until October last year. And then then it's been, yeah, manic since. So I record these podcasts by Zoom so I can see you, because it just makes it easier for me. And you're sat there wearing a branded fleece. <laughs> yeah, for everyone who can't see. <laughs> for everyone who can't see. Uh, nice navy blue with McCluskey, McCluskey Charter Surveyors on it. Tell me what it's like to set up as a new brand in in quite, I guess, quite in a, I don't know, is it rural area? Quite an it's it's difficult funny, area, maybe. Yeah, it's, it's a funny place. Sorry, I just realised I interrupted them. But it's a bit of a funny place. Torbay, I think it's a population of 120 or 130,000. So it consists of three towns, um, Torquay, Paynton and Brixham. And there's sort of, it, it's surrounded by fields everywhere, but there's a lot of nearby towns. You've got Totnes and Newton Abbott. And then Exeter and Plymouth aren't that far away. And I think they've got similar population. So there's plenty of work out there. And oddly enough, more more building surveyors than you would think in, in, in the area. When you start doing your research, I mean, I, I was spending my lunch times working for the local authority, ringing up estate agents saying, look, we're setting up in the next few months. Who do you use? And actually, is there capacity, do you think, for anyone to, to come in and, and take up, you know, pick up the scraps effectively? I didn't, I didn't put it like that, but that, that's, that's what I was asking. And I would say 90% of them went, yeah, no, we, we've had we've had two surveyors retire recently. There's a couple that, you know, okay, I'm not going to badmouth anyone, but that, that it wasn't going well, the relationship with them. And yeah, we're, we're absolutely inundated with instructions. So there's definitely scope for work. So that, that was enough for us to say, do you know what, despite the amount of competition there is out there, let's go for it. Let's just do it and see how it turns out. Because the worst that was going to happen at that point was, okay, we fold up. And we stay in our jobs. So we were quite lucky. Like I'd say quite lucky. It was it was a decision on our part. It was it was a sensible decision to, to try it that way. And I think for us it was quite organic as well. So at the start, it was almost a bit of a scope in terms of do surveyors work Saturdays? Is that normal? Like obviously in the construction industry, it was quite regular for you to work weekends, but but do surveyors, we rang a few estate agents to kind of say, look, you know, if we're able to do instructions for home buyers and building surveys, can we do them on Saturday? And people were really open to that. And actually clients, you know, they actually sometimes like to be at home when you're doing the survey so they can see what you're doing. It's a part of the process people don't often get to see. So knowing that we could do it on Saturdays meant that we could do it whilst we were employed. So we were able to have that safety net of let's test the market, let's see what the work's like until we got to a point where we were working every Saturday and then we were taking annual leave to fit one in in the week. And, and it was that, you know, almost do we, do we then start to reduce our hours so I think our workload we were very fortunate that it grew organically and that gave us confidence that even when we left and went full-time even if it was one survey a week it would cover the bills it would be enough to survive and anything more was a bonus so it, it worked well didn't it and what have been some of the challenges then starting up as a, as a new business Consistent work to a degree. I mean, I think the last few months are probably a little bit exempt from that, but it was the first two years when we were still employed, trying to get one survey in a week was a challenge. And I guess just getting our name out there and, and becoming that trusted, reliable source. You know, one thing that, that we decided to offer, Em and I discussed it, and actually, let's just give free time away to the estate agents. And, you know, I was saying to, to local agents, oh, if you've got any any problems, just give us a bell. And 
quite a few times they would say are you in the area we've got an investor that you know they're a builder they know what they're looking at they're just not sure about this damp or this crack can you just give us a go yeah absolutely obviously made sure that our pi covered that and um we went and had a look and, and yeah we provided sort of really quick email really quick rundown didn't charge for it and then oh aaron we've got a survey actually we're going to push your weight and it just kept going from there yeah that, that, that was probably the, the biggest challenge that i can i, I perceived i think the the other thing from much from sort of my point of view is we were doing a lot of reading when we were setting up about, you know, and that that kind of, con- well, not controversial advice, but kind of the different advice that you get when setting up about making sure all your ducks in a row. And I was joking with Aaron earlier that I said, we didn't have ducks. They definitely weren't in a row. They were more like squirrels at a rave at that point. But I, you know, love that phrase. Mm-hmm. But we'd done all of this reading and, you know, everywhere says, you know, make sure you've got your SOPs in place. Make sure you've got all your policies. Make sure you've got everything ready for when you start. And it got to a point where we think, if we do all of that, we're never going to start. And then we we read a book that said, start now, get perfect later. So it's a case of, you know what, we know we need, we know we're not going to do this. We had that vision. We just need to get on and do it. And, you know, like you said, now, two and a half years later, we've joined your mastermind. We're now kind of just having that time to make sure that we're dotting some of those I's and crossing those T's. But that's not going to happen overnight. That will be a process. But at least we're out there and we're doing it and evolving every day, I guess. And it, it's interesting because as an industry, we're quite risk averse, you know, and we don't make decisions lightly. So the fact that we will take a lot of time to plan our businesses and nobody wants to fail a regulation audit from our ICS and all of those things, but it can stop you. And it's that leap of faith, you know, the old, um, what's his name, Indiana Jones, he'd say that sort of leap of faith of, of the unknown. And it's, you know, what pushes you forward to actually, you know, go ahead and do that. But you're you're right, you know, one of my mottos, I have many mottos that I I quote at people is, you know, functional, not embarrassing. You know, so long as you're protected with your PI, you know, you've done as much due diligence as you you can. Functional, not embarrassing is what most people do. And we set our standards so high sometimes. We want everything to be perfect and to be right. And sometimes it just it just isn't. But if you don't do that, you never actually never actually get started. You know, and it's um, it's sort of giving yourself permission to make mistakes and learn, and just just like we were when we were kids, you know, to to, to just go on. I must admit, yeah, I, I think you're right, and I, I made so many phone calls to the RICS about, okay, well, what do we need to do, you know, with this bit, and what do we need to have in place, and doing research on the website, and you know, they they were they were really helpful. Obviously, they're going to be. They want to make sure that you know when we're not gonna you know, make it make a major mistake. And I think that really helped. Again, having locally, there's a handful of surveyors as well that were really supportive. And it was just a quick phone call. You know, we just want a bit of advice. Yeah, no problem. But it was it was really encouraging. I mean, I've always a little bit nervous about ringing sort of competitors, as it were, but yeah, not, not a problem. So I, I think I'd like to take that forward in our business is just help people, mentor people, give that advice. And I think like th- those relationships are invaluable. And like you said at the beginning, you're thinking, oh, can I ring a competitor and ask that question? And you were lucky that we had people that we knew locally, like I said, that you've worked with before. And during COVID, that's been massively helpful. Just be able to ring somebody else that knows the local market and been able to say, we're thinking of doing this. What are you doing? Or what do you think? And, you know, a lot of the government guidance was around use your best judgment. And you think that's great, but, you know, you don't want to be the only ones not working when everyone else is and, and risk losing your brand and risk losing your place in the market. On the other hand, we probably stopped a lot earlier than some others because actually you want to protect your clients. That is priority. So it was a 
tough decision, but being able to pick up the phone and just talk that through with other surveyors and sort of say, what are you doing, was really helpful. So. Yeah, we, we saw that an awful lot in uh, the Speyer Hub, the free Facebook group that we run. There was a lot of discussion over do's and don'ts. And then there was the judgment that came out of, you know, what do you mean you're inspecting properties when, when others are shielding and, and sort of vice versa? But I think what's the important bit that I took from all of that is that we need to learn to communicate as an industry and to support each other. And that informal mentoring and support is absolutely vital. And there's just not enough of it. But whenever anyone talks about mentoring, they think it's the formal getting you through your APC. And it's not, you know, it's just about the connections that you make. And, you know, you have the most success where you have the most support. And if you want to get on in your business, well, that's why you need to do things like you joined my mastermind or you've reached out to, to local people. And But we, we don't feel that we can. Sometimes we feel we need to do it all ourselves and, and do it the hard way. But asking for help is can sometimes be quite hard, but it can be the best thing that we've ever done. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm a nightmare for it. I, I will talk for everything. And I think that's why me and Em work so well together because obviously we're husband and wife, we like each other's company. I think a lot of people out there would be, you know, working husband and wife, living together, home office. Actually, we just communicate and we, we just talk about, okay, what are we doing today? And, and we feed off of each other's personalities as well, of, of each other's strengths as well. We know each other's strengths. So we work with that. And I think, yeah, that, that's sort of transpired into, into like you say, communicating with other surveyors locally as well. Yeah, it's, it's- it's easy to become insular, isn't it, when you work for yourself and it's quite an isolating place to be. So maintaining those networks. And I think it's about giving people permission as well. I think historically the industry perhaps hasn't been as communicative as it could or should have been. So by starting that conversation and saying, I'm not sure, what would you do? Actually then almost gives that person permission to reciprocate and in in a couple of months' time say, oh, actually, I'm not sure, what would you do? And it, it works both ways and someone's got to go first. But normally us because we're new to it i don't mind going first no. being, being a sort of well mainly extrovert it doesn't bother me like a stupid question if it is stupid fine have a laugh as long as i learn something I'm no, no such thing as a stupid question yeah at all yeah to- totally agree can i ask you about mental health because you've gone through periods of being out of work and we talked about resilience how does how has that affected your mental health and how do you cope with that Do you want me to go with that one? Yeah, okay. So I struggled when I first, and I don't, again, I don't want to talk badly about anyone, so I'm not going to mention any names, but when I joined the local authority in 2015, there was a character there and it was, he was my boss and it was difficult, really difficult. It was, I say borderline bullying, it it was bullying. I was so, after, after six years of wanting a job to become chartered, I then within six weeks had to deal with this and the possibility of not getting that scared the life out of me and it was you know it was a good 18 months before I felt myself again and it was just it whether things happen for a reason or it's fate or whatever you want to call it but around the same time M was just coming to the end of your coaching course and she was my rock through that I you know wasn't sleeping wasn't eating heart palpitations driving into work plenty of mistakes being made because I was so fearful of the, the you know the aftermath of what what might happen that never actually did happen it was just the constant worry and that 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 coaching that mentoring that conversation communication really helped and I am one person that needs to as as, you know friends will tell you I need to talk about things I can't hold it in because it will drive me insane so that I think talking has helped with that 
especially around that period. With regards to the redundancies, it's really weird. It, um, whether it's because I was young and ignorant, but the first redundancy was when I was 18, just got on with it. Just within two weeks, had another job, got, got back onto my apprenticeship. The second one was in 2012 when I was uh, made redundant again as a, as a carpenter and joiner, and that's when I went self-employed. We'd only just bought our house as well, so it was very sort of head-in-hand sort of moment. But again, I just got on with it, and, and all right, I was disappointed as I was to be made redundant from the surveying, from the private surveying firm. It, it just, it was one of those things. I had to get on with it. And there wasn't, there wasn't an opportunity to sit down because otherwise we would have lost the house. Now, okay, some people have got families and children and we don't have children. It's something we're working towards at the moment, but we still would have lost the house. There still would have been a lot of stress there, but we just made it work. So I think for me dealing with that, it was just, there wasn't any dealing with it, I guess. It was just get on with it and blow over it. And that was fine. And I don't feel like it affected me a lot the redundancies i don't know what, what emma would say about that no the redundancies not as much it's frustrating i remember one case in particular where i was at work you'd got a phone call early early in the morning to say don't come in today and i remember it affecting you quite hard and you telling me that you went upstairs you said i'm giving myself 15 minutes to wallow and at 15 minutes you got up you made half a dozen phone calls and you had a job for the next day mm. and you just got on with it so it's been a tough few years isn't it mm. but like you've said, you know, you you know where you want to go. And no matter how many setbacks, we've always said that everything we've wanted to achieve in life, we've always achieved it. It's just always taken us a bit longer than we originally planned, but we'll get there in the end. Definitely. And um sorry. And I, and I guess it's I guess it's knowing that it's possible, you know, that it is possible to get to your job, you know, and, and I guess that's where you look at role models of what's possible out there and how work can be and how life can be one thing I, I would say at this point is that um, and I don't know if you've ever reached out to them before but Lionheart you know they're a fantastic resource for surveyors they're a benevolent charity who who support us and what people don't realize is that even if you've only been an RICS member for one month and paid one month's fees you're entitled to support mm. through your whole career even when you've retired they have all sorts of things that they help people with not just mental health I mean at the moment with all the COVID they've actually been helping people fill out forms for for benefits if they haven't got work or loans or you know all of those things because actually as surveyors and professionals we don't usually have to go down that route so they 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 help with all sorts of things and when I left my corporate role and I was struggling I I reached out to them and I talked to them and just having someone to talk it through makes a, a heck of a difference and we don't always see that a lot in our industry. And whether it's because we don't have the regional meetups that perhaps we used to back in the day, you know, now things are more on online. But I see in the Surveyor Hub that we have is that something will start off as a can I just ask topic. And as you read through the thread, you notice that actually someone's not spoken to anyone all day. Someone actually needs a bit of support. Someone's not feeling very confident. And that's where we can just, you know, hey, chin up. You know, it's okay. You're in the right place. Well done for asking. Just that bit of encouragement. Because you don't always get that. And absolutely resonates with, you know, when I hear lots of stories of bully bosses, mm. you know, does anybody come to work to be a bully? Not really, but they're not very uh, considerate or supporting of people around you. And equally, you know, sometimes we can be too sensitive to what's going on and it's understanding or what's triggering that. And sometimes it's our personal circumstances and sometimes it's the place and the culture the culture of where you work. For me, when I was uh, struggling with stress and the particular circumstances I had at work, I developed a twitch. 
and my my I'm always fidgeting with my fingers. And I noticed it once. My, my husband pointed it out because we drove driven from London up to uh, to Middlesbrough to see the in-laws, and I tapped my fingers on the driving wheel on the steering wheel the whole time, like four hours, like. And uh, Howie didn't say anything. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he did, and I just ignored him. But I used to get sort of this twitch, and I'd go into meetings, and I'd be like twitchy, and I got the nickname twitchy. Now that's not helpful to somebody, you know. Sometimes it gets to the point where I just have so much tension in my shoulders and my neck I feel like some kind of Marvel DC character of just going get at this you know superpowers at my at my tips and my fingers but it affects us in all different ways you know some people it can affect their hair it can affect their skin their digestion it can affect their mood in lots of different ways and it can take a long time to recover when I worked for a house builder 20 odd years ago I had a bully boss and I had three months off work you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And a friend suggested joining, getting qualified as a surveyor. I just needed some experience. And I ended up there being, you know, been there for a, for a long time in the end. But that was my sort of my, my sort of indirect route into it. But I was actually having some time off because I just couldn't function. And it just affected my confidence. And when I look back now, you just think, one, I think sort of how far I've come over my career. And two, you know, I just want to shake that person but then equally, I just look and think, wow, Marion back then had no support. Mm. I didn't have any network of support. I didn't know what a good working environment looked like. Mm. And when you work for yourself, that's even harder. Mm. And that's why networks of support and things like the mastermind that we're part of, you know, can help you gauge, well, what's normal? Is it normal that all surveyors are stressed? You know, Lionheart do research every, I think it's a biannual survey they do, I think in the last one, it said something like, you know, 83% of surveyors find stress at work. I mean, really? Do we really need a stressful career like that? You know, and, and then it's looking at why, why is that? And there are things that you can do. You know, there's lots of things you can do to improve your mental health and your work-life balance or work-life integration, which is what I talk a, a lot about. But mostly it comes back to, you know, there's that saying, isn't there? You're, you're as successful as the five people you surround yourself with or, or whatever. And it's true, but it's not just about being successful in business. It's about being successful in your life. And how do you know that you've, you've made it? And I guess for you two, you know, just saying, would I go back to my old jobs? I think actually, no, I'm comfortable where I'm at now. Definitely. You, you've, you've raised quite a few interesting points that I, I picked up there. You sort of said the old Marion didn't have any support. And I must admit, it's so easy to be really harsh on yourself and actually not take into account that no one was there to help or no one sort of said, no, this isn't normal. I think the other another thing you said was actually that there were a few things that, that were said by my boss that I picked up on and I worked on and looking back he was spot on I was like yeah "Yeah, I'd wanted the job for so long and now I was there and it wasn't that I was sat back on my laurels just oh this will be a breeze it was just I think it was just relief more than anything that I was finally somewhere that I could progress and then yeah that, that sort of happened looking back at it it's funny how you change the way you feel about the past because by the end of it my last day he came up to me shook my hand and said, well done, really impressed. And I, I, I think without him questioning every little thing, justify why you're making that decision, Aaron. Why, why do you recommend that? Don't agree with you. Like, but it wasn't with a smile on his face. It was really aggressive. But it was without that, I don't think I would have passed my APC because essentially that's what it was. 
the APC was, well, okay, you've, you've recommended this, why? And it was just two and a half years of him asking me. And I just got into the habit of justifying every single decision I was making. And I wouldn't go to him with my recommendation without, you know, 48 hours of solid research first. So I, I owe him a lot, even though I would rather have not gone through it, I guess. But I guess there's that balance, isn't there? There's, you know, there's a tough love mm. over actually when something's not appropriate. Mm. I, I guess there was an, a, an element of me, if I'm being totally honest, of being a bit of a soft lad as well, <laughs> you know? So it's just being a bit oversensitive and just get on with it. But yeah, what's normal and what's not. So weird old time, but I don't think I'd have it. I don't think I would go back and change it because the way it worked out, like you said just a minute ago, where, where, where we want to be, and I wouldn't change it. And so the other thing that then happens is you get to your business and it all seems really good. Hmm. And then you overthink it. Yeah. I think, well, is something going to go wrong or this is too easy? <laughs> and we get to a point in our lives, I guess, where, you know, the um, some people talk about being in flow. You know, you're doing what you do. You do it really well. You know, work comes easy. Things are, are great. You know, and then we can, I guess, self-sabotage what's happening. And I see that a lot sometimes with, with surveyors that they, they think, oh, I need to grow. We need to grow and, and recruit more people because there's more work coming in. When actually we, we could think about things like, well, put your fees up then. It comes back to that recognizing what success means and how do you know, you know, and, and being content with it. And if you're continuing to drive yourself, then then there's something missing. And I think human nature to a degree, but it's our nature certainly to always be looking for the next thing. And it's being able to rein that in a bit. So when, when you know, looking back again, sort of five years, our goal was to work for ourselves. That was it. That was the end goal. And we never wanted to employ people because we wanted the freedom to be able to work when we wanted. We didn't want to have commitments of other people's mortgages to protect and it was it was just us within six months we're like oh yeah we could take people on and we could do this and we could do that and I'm thinking constantly what's the next step what's next and when the surveys are going well and then the design work is going well what else can we be doing and and when we start something else and that's going well what else can we be doing and you think we're very aware we don't want to grow too quickly so it's being mindful of that and enjoying the journey. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what does the future look like? Because you don't want to stay stagnant. You need to keep adapting to the market and changing the way we work to be responsive. But at the same time, holding that vision and knowing where it is that we want to be. It is, yeah. But it's also about, and I come back to that, you know, what's your definition of success? And we do have that magpie syndrome of what's the next shiny thing, you know, Uh, and and you talking about that reminded me of, you know, I coveted a mulberry handbag for many years and then I got one uh, with one of my, I got, I can't remember, I got pay rise or promotion and I got myself this fabulous handbag. And now I just use a little cheapy handbag, but I've got the the pleasure of knowing I've got an expensive one in the cupboard. (laughs) I I feel content. I digress. But we, you know, is that is that what what's that definition of, of success? But for me, I think that's where we need to start looking at our values and what's important and the difference that we want to make. Because continuing to to grow and be successful and have an empire, actually, that can be quite superficial. 
Yeah. Some of the things that are really important to us, you know, that, you know, why do you become a surveyor? You know, yes, you love it, but but why? There's something behind that. For me, it's 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 to do with my experience of of growing up, uh, living on a council estate, right to buy. You know, my mum's property had had deep, serious defects. You know, my sort of experience of that, and that actually, people need to get the best support and advice that wasn't available back then. My experience of dealing with claims and just seeing that actually surveyors don't come to work to do a bad job, but you know what? Sometimes bad things happen. You know, is all of those things sort of sort of bring us to today and that's why a lot of the work that I do is concentrating on your values and what's important to you because when you're working purposefully you know the next thing isn't to recruit someone else and build your empire it's to make a difference socially in your in your area do good make a difference to people and that is is just an amazing feeling when you can start to see that that happen. That's something that we we talk a lot about um, on the mastermind. And you've got something called a one tree promise, haven't you? Tell me a bit about that. So yeah, so the one tree promise was, so like you said, wasn't there from the beginning of the business, but as you said, you want a business that regardless of what, what industry you're in, you want something that has an impact. And knowing that we were in the construction industry, which obviously is responsible for the highest carbon emissions globally of any other industry, it sounds a little trivial, but planting a tree for every client that we work with is one small step to contributing to that. That's something that personally I've always been really passionate about is conservation and sustainability. So my sister is a doctor, she's a lecturer at university and, and is uh, focusing on restoration. My cousin works in ecology. So, and, and personally, you know, we use all chemical-free plant-based cleaning products, toiletries, no-use plastics. So actually, if that is something that's important to us personally, how do we then reflect that into making an impact? So our one tree promise was the first step of what we hope will be things to come to support restoration and, and helping kind of turn the shift of the construction industry into something that's more positive and reduce its impact. Yeah. And I've seen a real movement on that now. And it's interesting as people will come out of sort of the COVID years, as they'll be known, of, you know, sort of they value what's important, you know, how we live, social impact, as much as our, our physical impact. Mm-hmm. And and things like, you know, there are big decisions. There's lots ongoing about, you know, like the life of materials, you know, and what, what things can be used for. But also as surveyors, you know, how we spec repairs. Is it environmentally friendly? Is it the right way way to, to go? And we need to be the ones that are the sounding board for our clients, because that's what they're coming to us from, not just the insurance guarantee, tick, yeah, the property's okay. You know, they're ethically minded. And if you make a stand for that, then that's why they will come to you. And it's not easy, you know, shopping anywhere other than Amazon isn't easy, Yeah, you know, but it can be done. And it's sort of showing that that, that can happen. Yeah. And it's recommending sustainable materials, you know. So when we're looking at defects and repairs, what are the options? Because it's easy to just always give the traditional, easy to, because people will have heard of it, people will know about it. But it's giving people, even if they don't want to do that, it might be slightly more expensive or it might be less easy to get your hands on. But it's at least giving people the options so they can make informed decisions. Uh, that That's something that we're really interested in. And it's just planting the seed of awareness. Absolutely. Spreading the word. Well, look, it's been really good to talk to you both today. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. You've been listening to the Surveyor Hub podcast. We'd love it if you leave a review and let us know how we're doing. And if you want to find out more about how we're making a difference, visit us at blueboxpartners.com.